Well, Julie and I have a, a relative who died as a multi-millionaire. And based on the way he lived his life, you would have never known that. So he uh, grew up in the Depression. And because of that experience, early on developed this deep scarcity mindset. And this continued even when his economic situation changed drastically. Though he was a millionaire, he pinched every penny. Uh, he wouldn't change the batteries in his hearing aids when they went out because he wanted to save money so he couldn't hear anybody at family gatherings. He discovered that the city was charging him a base rate even when he didn't use water, and so he cut off public utilities to his house and collect rainwater. For our wedding, when Julie and I were a young married couple, he invited us over and he offered us two options for a wedding gift. One was a 40-year-old toaster that still had crumbs in it and a rusty kitchen knife set. I think we chose the toaster and uh, dropped it off at Goodwill on the way home. But, <laughs> but life could have been different for him, right? His economic outlook had changed drastically from when he grew up in a position of scarcity and poverty, and yet these old narratives of scarcity were so deeply ingrained within him. So that just because his outlook had changed, his behavior did not follow, it did not match this reality. He could have lived a life marked by generosity. He could have experienced the joy of blessing others. He could have lived a life with some modest comfort, at least being able to hear one another and have running water. And yet he was stuck in an old pattern, an old narrative of fear, of scarcity. We're in, continuing this series in the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 4 today. And the first three chapters of this book have declared a radical new reality that is made possible to us. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has ushered in a radical new reality. And Paul has been caught up in declaring this hope in the last three chapters. It's been this litany of praise of all the spiritual blessings that have been poured upon us in Christ. We have been chosen, adopted, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven. We have been called, empowered. And Paul just loses his breath, caught up in this litany of praise. We are, in effect, spiritual millionaires. Right? We have at our disposal the very resources of the kingdom of God, of this victorious king who pours out gifts upon us. And yet Paul acknowledges in chapter 4 that we run the risk of persisting in our old patterns of living. Reality is different, and yet we are so locked in our old patterns of living that sometimes our life is out of balance with this new reality. Our life is not aligned with the possibilities that come with being children of the King of God. And so in chapter 4, Paul takes this letter in a different direction. He makes an important shift. In chapters 1 to 3, he declares the wonder of what is possible in Christ. In chapters 4 to 6, he talks about how we can walk in congruence with this wonder. How we can walk in a new way because of what Christ has accomplished. And this shift hinges on a really significant word at the beginning of our text, and it comes in verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, in light of what I've said over these last three chapters, in light of this good news, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I want to zero in on this word, worthy. It's this Greek word, axios, and it has a picture in it. 
This word axios is this picture of equally weighted scales, of balanced scales. And what Paul is saying is that in light of what God has done, we ought to live a life that is congruent or in balance or alignment with what is possible. God has opened up a new possibility for us, so let's walk into that. Realize this new possibility. May our life be in balance with this good news of the gospel. Now, we need to be careful with this word, especially how it's translated in English. This word worthy could imply uh, that we could be unworthy if we don't do enough good things, right? We could take this verse if we're not careful to mean, well, Jesus has done all this uh, good things for us, so I now need to do a number of good things for him. And that's not what is being communicated in this text. That is not the spirit of Ephesians. In fact, we recall back in Ephesians 2, Paul emphasizes that it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. So this picture is not saying, I've done my part, let's see if you can rise to the occasion and, and live a life worthy. No, it's, it's more catching this idea that since God has made this possible, let's live a life that is in balance with that, congruent with that. Let's live into the possibility of the gospel. And so Paul, in chapter 4, begins to explore how we can become congruent with the gospel. And he likens this process to maturing or growing up. And so the metaphor then shifts into this picture of maturing from infants to grown-ups in Christ. And he envisions this possibility of us becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, to a time when we will no longer be infants. Isn't this interesting that Paul says just because God has made all this possible, it doesn't mean that there is not a process that awaits us. We still have a process of growth and formation after we've encountered the good news of the gospel. Even though we're blessed, we're still immature and are in process of growing into the fullness of what God has made possible. Now, I, I want us to notice a really small word, and it's the word we in this text. And I was surprised that Paul can count himself among the infants. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That we are infants. Now, Paul is this hero of the church. He's given his whole self to the church. He's currently suffering in prison for the gospel. And yet he himself acknowledges that he still has a process of growth. He hasn't fully grown into the, the full reality of the gospel. Even though he's far along in this journey, he still recognizes that there's still formation ahead for him. And I wonder if that relates to you at all. I wonder if that's actually maybe some good news. It kind of normalizes the, the frustrations we feel when even as we've been on this journey for a while, we still feel like we're infants at times in Christ. Perhaps you can relate. And, and maybe some of you come today sensing a lack of congruence between what you profess to be true and what you live to be true. And maybe that you felt a little bit out of balance in this Ephesians series. We've heard Paul share this great hope of what we have in Christ, but maybe in our lived experience, we're filled with despair and discouragement. Paul has spoken about the possibility of walls of hostility being broken down between us and others, but maybe we're still wrestling with strained relationships. Maybe there's some bitterness in our hearts. 
that, that has a grip on our hearts. Paul begins this text talking about becoming gentle and loving, and maybe if we're honest, we're struggling with anger and self-centeredness. And so there's a lack of congruence between what Paul proclaims could be possible and what we're living to be true. And so I wonder as we come into this conversation today, where you long for some growth in your life, where you're feeling out of balance, where there's that lack of congruence. And if you're struggling to discover what those areas are, look at who you are when no one's looking. That'll give you a good picture of where to start. That often shows who we really are. So Paul talks about this call to mature and to grow in Christ. Where do we desire that? Where do we desire to grow? I appreciate that Paul normalizes this long journey of formation. We ought to expect that this is going to be a process for us and for others. It helps us have grace for ourselves and for those that we're struggling to live with. Contrary to what we may have come to believe, God does not just zap us into new creations. He does not microwave us into wise, loving, gentle people. But this metaphor that Paul works with suggests that this is a journey of coming into congruence as we walk with the Lord. A.H. Strong was a Baptist uh, theologian, and he shares a story of a student at his seminary who was frustrated with how long the seminary studies were taking. And, uh, and he reflects on this. He said, a student asked the president of the school whether he could not take a shorter course than the one prescribed. Oh, yes, replied the president, but then it depends on what you want to be. When God wants to make an oak, he takes 100 years, but when he wants to make a squash, he takes six months. <laughs> and I submit to you that God wants to do a very profound, deep work within us. And the biblical narrative and Paul's own story reminds us that this is a journey. It's not a snap of the fingers, instantaneous transformation. Henry Nowen, a great spiritual writer, said he started to notice the difference in his life over the decades. And that always kind of discouraged me as a quote. It wasn't over the weeks, it wasn't over the, the months, but over the decades, there was this slow shift that he saw in his heart. Now, the reality is that spiritual growth isn't uniform, and there may have been seasons early in your spiritual journey where there was significant growth. And I can sometimes throw off our expectations, but no growth is uniform. I think about my own boys, there are some years where they grew four inches and other years where they grew one, right? Um, There may have been seasons where there was just a a radical shift and then other years where it was slow. I learned this this week that oak trees grow mainly over a two-month period in the year and the rest of the year is fortifying that growth. And perhaps that's uh, part of your experience. There have been those early seasons where things were just happening quick and exciting. And now in this journey, it just seems like the journey is slow at times. And there's backwards movements and we're, we're struggling. The question I want to engage this morning is this. How can we mature? How can we come into congruence, into axios between uh, what God calls us and how we walk? How can we live into this vision of becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? 
Well, we're going to be engaging this over the next three chapters, but I want to notice a few things in our passage today about this maturing process. And the good news I want to begin with is this, that God is actively at work in the maturing process. Now, some commentators, I think, overstate the shift that happens between chapters 1 to 3 and 4 to 6. Sometimes it's communicated that in chapters 1 to 3, we hear the gospel. In chapters 4 to 6, we figure out how to respond and how it applies. But the reality is that the good news of God's intervention in our life continues on in chapters 4 to 6. God doesn't say, I've done my part, now you do yours. No, God actually is at work helping and providing for us in this growing, maturing process. And it's prominent in our text through the verb ascribed to God, which is to give. So three times we see that God's initiative continues in our formation. And three times we hear this verb, to give, ascribed to God. But to each one of us, in verse 7, grace has been given. And again in verse 7, he, God, gave gifts to men. In verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, pastors, and so on. God provides the means we need to grow in this process. We are not left to our own resources. God is envisioned as this mighty warrior who has overcome our enemies and is now pouring out gifts upon us that enable us to experience maturity and growth and congruence in our life. Now, the primary gift that God gives us for maturity is the gift of the church, is the gift of the community. What we're going to notice throughout this text is that formation primarily happens relationally and in community. We do not grow simply by ourselves with our Bible in the basement. It is in the context of community that formation happens. And I want to notice three things that God gives us via the church that facilitates this process of maturing and growing. And the first thing we notice is this, that we mature in Christ through the ministry of teaching and equipping. So we read in Ephesians 11, 4, 11 to 12, that God gave some, this is one of the gifts, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The starting point for formation happens as we are placed in learning communities. And where God has has gifted some as evangelists, teachers, apostles to form communities where we can together stand under the word of God and be formed in a new way. We are shaped by new narratives, new ideas. We are shaped as we learn the scriptures together. Paul says as much in in Romans 12, he says that we are transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. And so part of spiritual formation involves encountering new ideas, new possibilities, new stories. The problem with our relative is that he was stuck in an old narrative, an old narrative of scarcity, of fear. And we come with our own old narratives that shape the trajectory of our life. We are shaped by our ideas. The vision we have for the good life determines what we do when we get up in the morning. And we are immersed in all kinds of different ideas that are competing for our allegiance. And one of the ways we experience spiritual formation is by immersing ourselves in a new kind of learning community. As we stand together under the word and learn a new story 
and learn about a new possibility of what God can do. And so very practically, this question I think we need to be asking is, what ideas are shaping us? What influences are we allowing into our lives? Who do we look up to? What do we read? And the reality is if if we're spending 24 hours a week immersed in 24-hour news or social media and 20 minutes in the Word of God on Sundays, what's going to be forming and shaping us? What's that balance look like? Now, we are called to be in, but not of the world, but are we becoming too in the world that we're, we're losing sight of a different story? Our ideas are important. What we think about, what we learn about, uh, shapes us and forms us. But that's not, not the, the whole process. Paul goes on to say that the gifts of teaching the gifts of leadership, is to facilitate us to participate in the work of God, to be part of the building up of the body. And so the the picture here is that we're not just passive consumers of religious content. That's not the whole formative process. Now, it's important for us to learn and to study. That's why we do this, why we gather. But that's not the whole process of formation, we are not just meant to be passive consumers from religious professionals, but the, the role of pastors and teachers is to help us practice and participate in our faith. Now, this all hinges on how you place a comma in this text. And there are some old translations of Ephesians 4.12 that get this wrong and give us the wrong picture of the church. And uh, when you read the King James Version, and I don't want to be too hard on the King James Version because it's very beloved by many, but it does get this passage wrong. Um, In the King James Version, they put a comma that changes the whole picture of church. And I wonder if you could just pick up on this. And so King James Version says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Can you see how that first comma makes all the difference? What it says in the King James Version is that the pastors are the ones that do the work of ministry. But when you remove that comma, which I'm going to show in a minute why we're supposed to, the purpose of pastors is to equip the saints so that they do the work of ministry, so that all the people do the work of ministry. That comma does not belong there. That comma creates a consumer picture of church where it's the religious professionals that do it all. In the Greek language, this is a little boring, but I'll get to an important point in a moment. Right? There are three different prepositions in this, and this is literally what it says. The pastors and teachers are for, pro, that's the Greek preposition, for preparing God's people, and then the preposition changes unto the works of service, unto the building up of the body. That comma doesn't belong there. The purpose of leaders and pastors is to draw us into participation. We are prepared unto works of service, unto the building of the body. I thought I was going to title my sermon For Unto Unto and just leave you all guessing, (laughs) but alas, I did not. What's the point? What's the point of all this? The point is that spiritual maturity doesn't happen unless we participate in the work of the church, in the practices of faith. 
We do not get formed just by spending an hour listening to a sermon, but as we get engaged and we live out these realities, engage in the practices of the faith, we're part of the works of service, part of the building up of the body. I heard a great analogy from uh, in a podcast this week, and uh, this writer was saying that, Imagine we wanted to become a great piano player. It wouldn't happen by thinking about it for 20 minutes on Sunday, right? It's like, oh, wouldn't that be great? What a wonderful vision, right? How do we become a good piano player? We practice. We participate. We engage not just our mind but our body, right? We participate in that. And I think in a similar way, we, we've lost sight of that picture of formation in the church, and, and we've limited it just to thinking about faith. I think I've used the analogy before. Imagine I asked my son to clean his room and he came down an hour later and said, God, or not God, I wish he said that, Dad. <laughs> Freudian slip there. But, you know, imagine he comes down and say, says, Dad, I memorized what you had to say. I, I memorized it. You said, go clean your room. And uh, I can actually say it in the Greek language. And I, I'm going to have a group over. We're going to study about what it looks like for me to clean my room and think about it. But if he doesn't actually do it, I'm just going to be like that. What's the point, right? The call is to participate, not just memorize, not just study. We do need that intellectual piece, but we also need the participation piece. So Dallas Willard writes this. He says, one of the greatest contemporary barriers to meaningful spiritual formation in Christ-likeness is overconfidence in the spiritual efficacy of regular church services of whatever kind they may be. Though they are vital, please keep coming, right? They are not enough. Though they are vital, they are not enough. So it's a both-and conversation, right? We need to gather, we need to listen, we need to study. But we're invited also to begin to practice and participate in the work, and that leads to a more holistic formation. Last thing I want us to notice, how we mature in Christ. There is the renewing of our minds through teaching. There is the renewing of our whole selves through participation in the practices of the faith and in the community. But this all happens in the context of accountable relationships, where we are accountable to one another. And this comes into focus near the end of our text where Paul says this, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Notice what Paul sees as the antidote to immaturity. How do we grow up? It's when we are in a context where people are speaking the truth in love to one another. Where we are speaking the truth in love to one another. Now this can get out of balance really quick in our relationships. If we are in relationships where people are loving but never speak the truth, we will not grow if people are, are always wanting to encourage us, they don't want to hurt our feelings, they'll never tell us uh, the ways we're struggling or hurting them or where we're maybe have some blind spots in our life. We will not grow. If you have a math teacher that just wants to love you so much that they just, it, it would just break their heart to tell you you got the math problem wrong, you will never get better at math. Right? And I think sometimes that's an imbalance in our relationships. We want to be loving but we struggle to, to tell the truth. And I have to say, I'm so grateful that I've had people in my life that have had the courage to tell me the truth. It's been painful at times to hear the ways I've 
missed things or overlooked or said something that was misunderstood, but that, that kind of relationship helps me grow. The flip side is also problematic, where we have relationships where there's all truth but no grace, right? And maybe you've had those kind of relationships where people are always pointing out your faults, pointing out your mistakes, but there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no love. Those people aren't for you, they don't desire your good, they just want to cut you down. That doesn't help us grow either because it crushes us. It causes us to become defensive. It causes us to lose heart. Paul envisions a community where we, as, our, as we encounter the gospel, are shaped by the gospel, we can speak truth and love to one another. We speak truth out of a, a place of love. We desire that people would be lifted up Again, I think I've shared before the difference between a prophet and a critic is that the prophet loves the people. The critic just likes to cut people down. <laughs> the prophets in the Old Testament say hard things, but their motivation is that they, the people turn and live. Right? How can we be formed into those kind of people, and how can we find those people? Are, are, do you have people like that in your life? If not, let's pray for those relationships. Let's seek to cultivate them here. You can reach out to, to leaders and let us know you're looking for that kind of space. I'd love to help cultivate and, and make those types of accountable relationships flourish in our midst. The call in our text today is to let God bring our life into congruence, into balance with the radical new reality made possible in Christ. God has given us the gifts we need to mature and grow. He's called us into a new community where we can be formed by the gospel, formed by participation in the body, formed in community and relationships of accountability marked by grace and truth. May we receive these gifts today. May we receive this call so that we might be freed from some of those old patterns that are tripping up, out, up our life. We might be called away from a life of fear and scarcity into a life of hope a life of new possibilities. Would you join me in prayer? God, we do pray that you would pour out these gifts upon us, Lord. That you would equip us for what you've called us to. Lord, we thank you that in Christ, we have the possibility of living a very different life, and yet we acknowledge and confess that we are stuck in some old patterns, some old narratives, some old ways of viewing reality. Would you renew us by the transforming of our mind as we stand under your word? Would you shape new patterns in our life as we practice our faith? Lord, would you provide those relationships and the support we need to grow so that we might grow into maturity, attaining the full measure the fullness of Christ. Lord, would you continue to help us along that path? We pray in hope and in faith in your name. Amen.